Hello and welcome to another episode of APM Success. If you can tell, I'm speaking in hushed tones this morning here at the global headquarters. We have a new baby sleeping upstairs and I'm trying to keep it down a little bit. I'm going to be taking the self-employed version of paternity leave over the next couple weeks. So we're re-releasing a few episodes having to do with MedMail insurance with Jennifer Wiggin from about a year and a half ago. Hope you enjoy the content this week and next week and we'll be back with updated programming the week following. As always, thank you for tuning in. So basically, if you join ABC Anesthesia Associates or XYZ Pain Management Consultants, you're probably going to be required to get the malpractice insurance that that group already has in place. So you're going to have very limited options in that regard. If you join a hospital, a large network, an educational facility, you're again going to be insured by whatever program they have in place. Those types of facilities are generally self-insured. They don't buy outside malpractice insurance. If you work for Cleveland Clinic, Kaiser Permanente, the University of Texas, they're all self-insured for the most part. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 120 of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Jennifer Wiggins. Jennifer is the CEO of Aegis Malpractice Solutions, and she is an expert specifically in helping physicians understand the risks that they have in terms of medical malpractice lawsuits and getting them the right coverage to be able to protect them. So Jennifer, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. To get us started, why don't you just share a little bit about yourself and your business? Sure. Happy to do it. So Aegis is a a fledgling of an agency. We have only been around for about three years or so, survived the pandemic for the most part. But my history is that I have only ever worked in the malpractice industry. I cut my teeth at Medical Protective, which is one of the largest malpractice carriers in the nation. They're right here in my hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana. I started there right after college, worked there for 16 years, learned a ton of great information about the industry. But for a variety of reasons, as our passion began to shift, we really decided that what we were excited about was not just representing one particular carrier when we're working with our doctor clients, but we really wanted to be the voice and the expert to be able to help a doctor cut through all of the mess and the confusion of the marketplace and really understand who are all of the carriers, what makes them different, what makes one carrier maybe better than another in a particular area, what are the pricing differences. And so our job now, exclusively at Aegis, we are focused only on malpractice insurance for physicians and surgeons. So we work with all the carriers in the marketplace so that we can help doctors compare all of their options and make sure that they've got the right policy for them with their unique situation. And obviously, we want it to be as cost-effective as possible. Can you tell us a little bit about this, the current landscape as it relates to malpractice for physicians right now in America? Sure, sure. So obviously, we're still somewhat in the middle of COVID. That's been a challenging year for providers for a variety of reasons. You know, in, in, in 2020, our biggest struggle 
was, you know, elective surgery is going away, a lot of things shifting in terms of what we can and can't do on a healthcare front. We also saw telemedicine and telehealth really take off as a result of necessity, even though that was already kind of a trend in healthcare. And so, you know, we are starting to see some of that unfold. We're also trying to see how the government is going to respond as it relates to physician immunity. There's been some talk in certain states that they will uphold that so that um, physicians who responded in light of the emergency situation, that they would be protected. So we're still waiting to kind of see how all of that unfolds as it relates to malpractice, but we have seen some COVID cases starting to get reported. So that has, it's not been a, a huge amount of cases, but there are definitely a few dozen that have been filed nationwide as it relates to COVID on the malpractice front. But what we are also seeing as an industry is a little bit of an uptick on claim frequency and severity. So those are the two big measures. Those are the drivers that what affects doctors' malpractice premiums. So you've got frequency, which is how often doctors are sued, and then obviously severity, which is how big the payouts are. So we are seeing a little bit of an uptick on both of those, which is driving some premium increases, particularly in certain states where that's a little more prevalent. So that's kind of where we're at as an industry right now. Are there any geographical, we'll call them distinctives? <laughs> are there any places it's really tough to be a doctor because of this dynamic? Yeah, there are. I mean, large metropolitan areas are always the most difficult. So, you know, the hot spots as it relates to malpractice is going to be, you know, Miami, Chicago, New York, LA to a certain extent, although that's not quite as bad, but always in those areas, that's where you're going to see the bigger hits on claims. Those jurisdictions are just by nature, a little bit more frivolous. So you're going to see lots of quick dings, but you're also going to see the higher payouts in those areas. Got it. You, you mentioned COVID. I'm curious, you know, I was reading a headline yesterday where they're talking about in North Idaho, they're going to crisis standards of care because of the capacity and resource constraints. There's just like, there's no more ventilators or there's, you know, there's, there's very functional, like there's no room at the inn here. I'm curious, have you seen any med mal cases come across your desk as it relates to like hospitals being overwhelmed and, you know, people dying as a result and claims arising from that? Yeah. I mean, there definitely have been, there've also been cases as it relates to, you know, not responding fast enough, not catching it soon enough. We also are seeing some claims or patients are alleging that they got COVID at an at a location. But that's kind of what we're still we're waiting to see how that all shakes loose because no, none of those have paid out yet to my knowledge. And obviously we're still de dealing with a really bogged down court system because you had all of those cases in 2020 essentially put on hold. So we're not going to see any of these things resolved for a while. And then you have you know, associations like the MPL Association, which is the national malpractice carrier association that's lobbying to really make sure that physicians are given a fair shake. And we'd like to see a lot of those protections upheld because, you know, almost every single doctor in this day and age is, is doing their best. They're doing what they can with what they have. And so whether it's a packed emergency room or it's a short staffed office because you've got people that are quarantined or, you know, staff that are still laid off from a hard year before. So, I mean, we really are hoping that we're going to see those protections upheld for our doctors. Can you give us a sense for how likely is it that a physician may face a malpractice, either suit or claim in their career? 
Yeah. So we've done um, quite a bit of research on this just to kind of give doctors a, you know, real life example of what, what this looks like. And so some of the statistics that we've pulled obviously have to do with specialty and they also have to do with the number of years in practice. So, you know, for most of the low risk specialists, so, you know, allergists, psychiatrists to a certain degree, some of those other non-surgical lower end specialists, you know, 30% of those doctors are going to experience a claim within the first, by the time they reach age, let's say 45 or 50. Higher risk specialists, so our neurosurgeons, our OBGYNs, our orthopedic surgeons, 88% of those guys are going to have a claim by the time they reach age 40 or 50. So, I mean, the chances of you getting named in a suit is very likely. Now, that's not to say it's going to pay out. It's not to say that you did anything wrong. But in today's day and age, the chances of you at least being named, because again, remember, malpractice cases generally have a long list of uh, defendants. So it's not just you. Usually it's anyone who ever had any involvement in that care of that patient, whether it's allied staff, other specialists, anyone within the scope of that particular patient's course of treatment is probably going to get named in a suit. Obviously, the longer you're in practice, the more those numbers go up. So even for our lower risk specialists, by the time they retire, you know, 70% of them are going to have at least one case. And obviously for the higher risk specialists, almost 99 to 100%, you're going to have at least one by the time you get to retirement. Do you have a sense for, for anesthesia and pain where they would sort of fall? Yeah, they're going to be probably somewhere in the middle. So anesthesia in particular that we see claims are on, on one end of the spectrum or the other. So it's either a chipped tooth or it's a death case. So very rarely do we see anything in the middle with those when it comes to a, you know, a tooth damage because of an intubation or anything like that, those are fairly frequent. Most of the time, those don't get reported as a malpractice case. Usually those can get taken care of through a variety of other means. So those don't usually get counted, but you know, it's still, it's still an adverse outcome. You still have to take care of it. So I would say for, for anesthesia and pain man, and pain management doctors as well, you're going to be somewhere in that middle range. You're not going to be at low. You're not going to be at the high. So probably around 40 to 50% are going to experience a claim by the time they get to age 50, probably closer to 60% by the time they get to retirement. So it's a coin flip, whether or not this is going to be something that you are personally going to deal with in your career uh, at Correct. best, probably. Correct. Yeah. And if you haven't been involved, I guarantee one of your peers have. So you will hear it about it or experience it in one capacity or another. And I think that's a, a good point. You said, you know, whenever someone has an adverse event as a patient, it's it's frequently let's sling everything against the wall and see what sticks. We're going to name the hospital and the surgeon and the anesthesia, you know, and like anybody in the room at the time as the, the lawyers are doing what they do. That's right. Yeah, they just. Throw the spaghetti against the wall, see what sticks, go after the good stuff. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the MedMal market at large? Like who are the insurers? How big is their market share? Is it like one or two big players? Is there 30 options to choose from? Yeah. Yeah. So the malpractice marketplace is really interesting. We're coming off of what we call a soft market, which was a period of time in the marketplace where there was tons of competition, lots of carriers, lots of options, everything from the big, you know, behemoth A-rated carriers all the way down to some risk retention groups and some small startups. Those are really common during a soft market because everyone's doing really well. And so lots of people are like, hey, let's start our own malpractice company. 
So we see lots and lots of carriers during periods of soft markets. And then during hard markets, which is when claim frequency and severity generally spikes, then you start seeing those risk retention groups, so smaller carriers going bankrupt or selling out, getting out. But as a whole, you know, you have probably 10 or 15 carriers that are dominating the market. Some of them are regional players. Some of them are national players. There are about five or six big national carriers that can write malpractice everywhere. And that's carriers like Medical Protective, ProAssurance, Coveris, The Doctor's Company, Mag Mutual is now going national. You've got big regional players like MMIC, Lots of other carriers like that. NorCal just merged with ProAssurance, so that's now making their pocket a little bit bigger. So lots of big carriers like that that can do stuff everywhere. And then obviously you have state-specific and regional carriers that are really big players. Like SBMIC dominates the market in Tennessee. TMLT is huge in Texas. Copic is big in Colorado. So you have some places where one carrier is big in a state, and then you have the big national carriers that can do stuff everywhere. Are there any carriers that have a specialty specific angle, or is it more just geographically sensitive as far as pricing and robustness of coverage? Yeah. You, there's a couple of specialty specific carriers, like Omic is a carrier that just writes ophthalmologists, for example. So you do have one or two that do that. They're generally smaller, but for the most part, every carrier can write every specialty. Now, there might be some carriers that have like an affiliation with like one of the state medical associations or a national association. So if you're a member of XYZ National Association, you get a 5% premium discount. So we are we do see that kind of stuff on a specialty-specific basis. Can you talk about some of the basic terms and coverage and what does it mean if, if I'm comparing med mal policies? What should I be looking for? Sure, sure. So obviously the first thing is is to the two different types of policies. And I don't know if you want to dive into that now or later, but that's that is our number one question that we get. I do. And actually before we even get to that level, let's sort of take it one level higher. And there's different types of employment that physicians will have either I'm working for myself, 1099 locums, or I'm W-2, or I'm a business owner. So maybe give us some context for the different employment circumstances and how you're thinking about this question in those circumstances, and then we can get into some of the policy mechanics. Yeah, for sure. So when we're working with providers, you know, let's let's say, for example, we're working with folks that are just finishing up residency or fellowship, they're getting ready to start private practice. So you could be going into a variety of different avenues, as you mentioned, you could be joining a practice, you could be joining a hospital or a network, you could be setting up shop as a solo provider, you could be deciding, I want to float around as a locums provider, and I want to do 1099 work and call my own shots. So lots of different ways that providers nowadays can get into the practice of medicine. Your malpractice insurance is affected differently depending on which one of those things you do. So if you join like a practice that's already established or a hospital or a network, normally in those situations, your malpractice insurance is taken care of for you. So you really have very little say-so in what kind of coverage you get. So basically, if you join ABC Anesthesia Associates or XYZ Pain Management Consultants, you're probably going to be required to get the malpractice insurance that that group already has in place. So you're going to have very limited options in that regard. 
If you join a hospital, a large network, an educational facility, you're again going to be insured by whatever program they have in place. Those types of facilities are generally self-insured. They don't buy outside malpractice insurance. If you work for Cleveland Clinic, Kaiser Permanente, the University of Texas, they're all self-insured for the most part. Now, the one thing that's unique about those types of policies, and one question that providers really need to be asking, is the question about limited scope and duty coverage. So usually what happens is when a doctor joins a practice, again, all of their insurance is taken care of for them, but that policy is limited in scope and duty, meaning it only insures them for what they do for that practice. So While it's taken care of for you and it's that peace of mind, if you have any interest in doing a side gig, moonlighting, doing anything outside, even if it's charity work or anything you might want to do outside of the practice, you need to be asking the question of whether or not that's covered under your policy. Nine times out of 10, it is not. So you would actually need to get a separate policy if you want to do any other work outside of that employment agreement. If you are a solo practitioner or even a contractor like that locums are 1099, in that instance, you're in the driver's seat. So it's up to you to do all the legwork, do the comparisons, um, really figure out what's the right product for you in terms of, do you want a claims made policy? Do you want an occurrence policy? Do you want, you know, what policy limits do you want? Do you want the ability to do work in multiple states? Do you want the ability to be able to do telehealth? Lots of questions like that that you'll want to ask on the onset of that policy to make sure you're setting yourself up for success down the road. Obviously, you can always tweak it and change it if you need to going forward, but when you're in those positions, you're in a much better place to be able to really ask the questions that you need to to make sure you've got the insurance that you want and that's going to set you up for success down the road. And how about for a practice owner who is perhaps looking at this question for themselves and also perhaps, you know, a couple nurse practitioners and nurses. Yeah, same thing. So you're now looking at it, not just for yourself, but you're looking at it for your practice as a whole, right? So you're trying to figure out what's the best way to insure myself, but to insure my business, to insure all my employees and make sure that that policy is going to cover everybody the right way. And you then have the decision too. that limited scope and duty question then falls back to you in terms of, do you want your staff to be able to go work outside? And if so, we'll set up a policy that allow them to do that. If you don't, if you're saying I'm paying your malpractice premium, I really want to make sure I've got some guardrails on this. You can set up limited scope and duty into your policy so that you know for sure you're only covering your folks for what they do while they're working with you. For people who have this decision-making power in this conversation, what are some of the key facets of their policy that they should be looking at and considering? Yeah. So outside of obviously the type of coverage and the amount of coverage, when we're doing carrier comparisons with our providers, so obviously we're getting quotes from everybody, we give everybody a kind of side-by-side objective comparison. And here are some of the main things that we're looking at between carriers. We're looking at how long have they been in business? Are they A-rated carriers? And I mentioned that earlier, and I just want to touch on why that's important. So A-rated carriers, this is an AM-best rating. It's their financial strength. I know everybody's somewhat familiar with that. But basically, that just means, you know, how likely is it that they're going to be around to pay your claim when the time comes? So an A-rated carrier is really important. Those carriers have to file their rates with the Department of Insurance. They're highly regulated. It means that they've got to all play by the same rules. 
And it also means that there's some protections. So if you are insured by an A-rated carrier and heaven forbid that carrier goes under, now chances are if they're A-rated, they're not going to, but if that were to happen, you are protected by the state guarantee fund, which means that state would activate to cover you if there was an open claim and your malpractice carrier is now defunct, the state guarantee fund steps in and actually will take care of those claims for you. If you choose to not go with an A-rated carrier, let's say you decide to go with like a risk retention group or maybe a small mutual that's not rated or covered by the guarantee fund, you don't have those protections. So sometimes you can get better rates, right? Because those guys aren't regulated. So they can charge whatever they want. There's a little more flexibility. So sometimes those can be really appealing to doctors because they're cheaper. Usually they have more flexibility to say, all right, we'll cover this procedure and this procedure for you but you don't have that kind of net underneath to protect you in case they go out out of business. So we're looking at years in business. We're looking at their financial stability. We're looking at their scope in terms of if you go with this carrier, do they only cover you in Colorado or can you do work other places as well? So we're looking at their scope. We're looking at obviously their trial win rate. So we want to know how good are they at actually protecting you when the rubber meets the road. We also look at their flexibility in terms of, do they let you pick your own defense attorney or are they going to make you work with their guy? And is their guy good? So those kinds of things are kind of important. This is why we buy malpractice insurance. So those types of things, in addition to, you know, does the policy have consent to settle? Meaning, do you, the provider, have the final say on whether or not a claim gets settled? That's a big deal because for a doctor to have a claim settled without their approval, and this happens more often than you might think, you know, then they've got that black mark on their record. They now have a paid claim that gets reported to the National Practitioners Data Bank on their behalf. Now that they get credentialed anywhere else going forward, that claim is going to be on their file. So having consent to settle is really important for providers, and that's another thing you want to make sure you look at across the board. And then obviously there are other things like how good is their risk management program? Most carriers have a lot of great um, educational programs. Some of them you get premium discounts if you take their course. You can get CMEs for the courses that you take with them. And then a lot of them have other benefits and perks like mutual companies means that you're a shareholder, you're an owner, so you get dividends. Some of them have special like retirement savings accounts for their providers. So for every year that you're with them, they take a percentage of your premium and they tuck it away into a savings account that you can cash out at retirement. So there's lots of other nuances beyond what's the price, how good are they, that can really separate carriers in terms of what makes one maybe more valuable than another. In terms of policy limits, can you talk a little bit about the options and what you recommend based on the cases you've seen? Sure. So we actually just did an episode on limits, I think last week or the week before on our our podcast, Malpractice Insights. And we talked about kind of the things you should be looking at when you're trying to figure out how much coverage to carry. So as a baseline across the board, the most common malpractice limit nationwide is 1 million, 3 million. That means you get 1 million worth of coverage per claim with a $3 million aggregate for the year. But that's not the case everywhere. There are some states that have specific state required policy limits. For example, in Indiana, where I live, We have a patient compensation fund um, and we have a malpractice cap. 
So in Indiana, providers only need to carry 501.5 million because you get enrolled in the fund and the fund actually kicks in some money towards your malpractice limits there. So lots of things like that that you want to look at. The other thing you need to look at is, you know, what's the average claim payout for my specialty in my particular geographic area? Am I, do I have enough coverage? Up in Michigan, we often see providers who say, I'm just going to carry a 200,000, 600,000 policy limit. And I look at their, you know, they're an OBGYN and I'm looking at their average claim payouts and I'm like, that is not enough coverage. You're going to be in trouble because on average, nationwide malpractice claim payouts are over $300,000 a piece. Now, different specialties obviously could drive that up or down. So, I mean, that's average. You obviously still see the million, multi-million dollar claims being filed. So you just really need to take a look at that as well. If you're in a group, obviously, you also need to take into consideration how much coverage your peers are carrying because you don't want one doctor in a group of 10 to have way more coverage than someone else because that could potentially leave them as a target. So lots of things like that that providers need to look at and consider. Usually what we do when we provide quotes for doctors is we'll provide quotes for several different layers of coverage. So you can decide based on your own risk tolerance. Do I want a little bit more for a couple extra thousand dollars a year or do I, am I fine with whatever the baseline is and, and is that sufficient for me? It really is a personal choice at the end of the day. Have you seen cases where an employer, you know, and we talked about the circumstance in which you're with a bigger group or a hospital or something like that. And the employer gives you sort of out of the box coverage that is perhaps insufficient or less than recommended. And an individual makes a decision to augment that coverage. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, what we've done a lot and we've recommended in some instances is that you actually make it part of your employment agreement that you want to carry your own. Like if you just feel that what they're providing for you is not sufficient, then you can't. In malpractice, it's harder to do like excess coverage. That's not as common with with our industry. It's preferable that you would just say, I don't want that one. I'm going to get this one instead. And oftentimes what we'll see is, you know, let's say let's say the employer's product was going to pay $8,000 a year worth of premium. And the policy that you're going to buy is going to cost you $9,500 a year. Usually what we can say is, well, then ask for a stipend. So have them, you know, pay you your $8,000 a year that they would have put towards your malpractice premium, you use that to help subsidize your own, but then get the one that you want. So we do oftentimes recommend that, especially when the employer-based coverage is really inadequate. So you mentioned, you know, having one physician who has perhaps way more coverage, and I'm thinking of a circumstance where there's a big surgery, there's like two or three surgeons in the room and two or three anesthesiologists and a bunch of people all doing stuff on a big case and something goes awry, and you look across all of the limits, and anesthesiologist number one is one three, anesthesiologist number two is one three, one three, one three, and then that one surgeon is like, has some huge coverage. Is that something, because I understand conceptually, if they have a lot of coverage, then insurance or uh, the lawyers are like, let's go after the guy with the big policy because they can settle. They're not paying out of pocket, and they're still getting a big check. Is that is that known by the the plaintiff, by the the patient filing the claim, like how big everybody's policy is? No, they wouldn't know that on the onset, but once the claims get filed and the insurance companies get involved, they're going to, the, the plaintiff attorneys will find out <laughs> fairly quickly what they're dealing with. And then obviously the patient will find out on the back end, but there's no way they're going to know unless somebody's, you know, silly enough to somehow 
publicly post how much insurance they have. There's no way a a plaintiff or a patient would know before they sue somebody how much insurance they have. Now, the one exception to that rule, and this is a little bit of a deviation, in the state of Florida, we see a lot of doctors that practice without malpractice insurance. It's just one of those areas where premiums are really, really high. And the state has allowed doctors to go without. So basically we call those doctors practicing bare. So they have no malpractice insurance, but in order for them to do that, they have to publicly post in their office that they don't have it. And they have to be able to post bond. I think it's like $200,000 or $250,000. They have to be able to show that they're liquid enough that they could pay, you know, defense costs and indemnity if they needed to. But that's the one exception to the rule where a patient might know on the onset that a doctor, you know, in this instance, doesn't have malpractice insurance. And maybe that's a deterrent, but it also, you know, could show them that, hey, then this doctor, I can go after his boat and his uh, house and his 401k and everything else. So I don't know. I don't have enough data to see how those claims have been resolved, but in those instances, it has to be posted publicly. So I want to kind of wrap it up on this, which is going to be part one. And by the way, you mentioned your podcast. So anybody who's listening, go to apmsuccess.com slash 120. This is episode 120. We're going to post a bunch of links to all the applicable resources that Jennifer has discussed today, including her podcast, which have been checking that out this morning, would highly recommend lots of great deep dives on certain facets of what we're discovering, what we're discussing this morning. Let's talk for a minute about tail coverage. This is something that I've run into with my clients, not infrequently, is whenever you're walking out the door because you wanted to quit, you get zapped with this big invoice, like, oh, by the way, you owe us X tens of thousands in order to cover your, into perpetuity, the liability for the procedures that you've done while you're working under our roof. So talk a little bit about how that works and how to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Let me take one quick step backwards and I'm not going to spend tons of time on this, but this is the claims made versus occurrence discussion. And this is part of the education that we really try to equip our providers with when they're buying their insurance day one, because that's when this really comes into play. So when you're looking at malpractice insurance, there's two different types of policies you can get. You can get an occurrence policy or you can get a claims made policy. And I won't bore you with too much of the details. We have an episode on Malpractice Insights that really gets into the weeds of these two. But to keep it simple, occurrence malpractice insurance triggers based on when the incident actually occurred. So you only have to carry malpractice insurance while you're practicing because it triggers based on when the patient was seen. So as long as you were insured when you were working, when you cancel and you walk away, you're done. So there is no tail insurance required for doctors who have occurrence coverage. Claims made malpractice coverage is triggered based on when the claim is made against the provider. So claims made policies are two in one. So you have to carry the insurance, obviously, while you're working. When you cancel it, you have to get tail. And tail is the policy that starts at your cancellation date and it extends your coverage into the future to your point in case a claim is made against you after you've already walked away. So a lot of times providers just don't even know, right? Especially if it's an employment arrangement, if your insurance is provided for you, you don't realize you're on a claims made policy. And when you cancel and walk away, you're going to have this tail looming over your head. So tail is generally two times one year's premium. So let's say you pay $10,000 a year for your malpractice insurance. You're looking at like a $20,000 tail. It's a one-time purchase. It has to be purchased within 30 to 60 days of canceling your insurance. So you have a small window of time when you can buy it. 
The insurance carrier bylaw has to offer it to you. So you have you have at least one offer. Now, what we're seeing nowadays is a lot of carriers are getting into the standalone tail market. So if you get a tail quote from your carrier, that's not the end of the story. You have, you know, again, that small window of time where you can actually shop around. So you can get tail quotes from lots of other carriers, compare all of your options, and then decide which one you want to move forward with. Unlimited tails are the most common. And obviously, those are the most thorough. So they don't expire. They basically cover you from cancellation date indefinitely into the future for any claims that could come in down the road. You can also buy limited tails. So you could buy a one-year tail. You could buy a two-year tail. You could buy a five-year tail. And obviously, it's cheaper than an unlimited tail. But it does mean after year two or year five, you're uninsured. So you better hope there's no claims that come in after that point in time. Otherwise, there's no coverage in place anymore. And sometimes we'll have providers that say, oh, well, the statute of limitations in my state is only two years. So I really only need a two-year tail. Well, not really, because there are a couple of exceptions to the statute of limitations rule that can make that more problematic. The first one is the date of discovery. So the statute of limitations clock doesn't start ticking until the day that the patient discovers something went wrong. So if it was an orthopedic case and there was something wrong with the implant, they didn't discover it until five years down the road. They have two years from that date of discovery to still file against the doctor. You also have um, issues involving minors. So if you've got any pediatric cases or anybody under the age of 18, they have until the age of majority plus the statute to file a case. So those are two exceptions that I always want to make sure people are aware of because a two-year statute doesn't mean anything if you have potential looming cases that could still get reported beyond that. So those are things to consider. Seems like an area where it's perhaps like a penny-wise, pound-foolish situation where if for one time annual premium, you get one year, for two times annual premium, you get forever, doesn't really make sense to pay one and a half for two years. I would imagine. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I just feel like after you've had a long, successful career in medicine, why would you run run the risk? I mean, why would you? So, and it even covers your estate. So even if you pass away, it protects your estate um, down the road as well, because we have seen cases that, you know, a doctor dies before a claim is resolved and they can come after the doctor's estate. So it's important. I think it's worth looking into. I have plenty of doctors that don't buy it but it's definitely worth considering thoughtfully and you need to really make sure you understand the risk if you don't buy it. One other thing I'll mention about tail, this is part of that, you know, decision, early decision that's really important. When you're getting into an employment arrangement, make sure you look at your contract language to know whose responsibility it is to buy that tail. Because a lot of times that's in there and people just gloss over it because they're just excited to start working. So just make sure you know. That if that's your responsibility, then you need to probably have an idea of what that cost is so that you can be prepared for that down the road when it happens. Because again, you have a small window, it's relatively pricey, and it has to be purchased then. Otherwise, the offer expires. Yeah. And quick contract negotiation point here. In general, it's always helpful if you're negotiating to negotiate on something that doesn't cost your prospective employer explicit dollars on day one. So saying like your salary is 350 and I'm negotiating for 400, the employer is going to feel that as like a pretty sharp jab potentially. Whereas if you're negotiating some of the more qualitative or potential elements of a contract, like tail coverage, like, you know, 
if your contract says, if you leave, you're going to pay tail and you could perhaps negotiate and say, listen, after one year, I only want to pay 50% of the tail. After two years, if I stay for two years, it's incentive for me to stay. Then the employer is going to pick up all the tail. That's one way to make a contract more favorable where the employer doesn't have explicit cost and where you can still significantly benefit. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, I want to wrap up here, Jennifer. This has been amazing. So this is again, part one, everybody. So come back next week. We're going to do some more advanced planning, deep dive questions around MedMal. Jennifer, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today on APM Success. Thanks so much. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.